Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everyone. Just before we start the show, I, I wanted to take a second to say a few words about our, our very kind sponsors. 100 Resilient Cities is a part of the Rockefeller Foundation, which which you'll probably know is one of the world's largest charitable endowments. 100 Resilient Cities is is focused on, on helping cities around the world become more resilient to the, the social, physical and economic challenges of the 21st century. They're doing some excellent projects in terms of, you know, environmental sustainability, in terms of economic sustainability, and just in terms of, you know, making life generally better for everyone in cities from Manchester to Miami, to Melbourne, to Montevideo. You can find out lots more, including reading up on some of those fantastic projects, at their website, which is 100resiliencecities.org. Anyway, now on with the show. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello? I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Cinematic Podcast. This one's a bit of an episode of two halves, as, as I understand people who like football might say. Uh, in the first half, I'm going to be interviewing a chap called Eric Klinenberg. He's the director of the Institute of Public Knowledge at New York University. In 2013, he was appointed the research director of Barack Obama's $1 billion program to rebuild the uh, region around New York that was affected so badly by, by Superstorm Sandy. And he was in the country this week to to promote his new book, Palaces for the People. So we had a chat about um, social infrastructure. What is it? Why should we be investing more of it? And you know, why does it have such a big effect on the character of our cities? After that, in the second half of the podcast, it's our, our semi-regular Ask the Expert slot with the Centre for Cities. This week, I'm talking to uh, Skyline's semi-regular, actually, Director of Policy, Paul Swinney, about whether we've been... Ignoring towns in favour of cities, and it's a it's a pretty wide ranging conversation covering all sorts of aspects of you know how how economics works, and agglomeration theory, and other other exciting nerdy things like that. It's a slightly echoey interview for annoying technical reasons, but uh, it's it believe me, it's interesting stuff. So bear with me on that. Anyway, first up, straight from New York, here's my interviewee. My name is Eric Kleinenberg, and I'm a professor of sociology at New York University where I also direct the Institute for Public Knowledge. That's a, that's a pretty big field, public knowledge. Public it's knowledge. It's fairly, fairly open-ended there. I, I look for concepts that allow me to do anything I want and uh, get no uh, external control wherever possible. Excellent. Good choice. <laughs> and uh, you're, you're here on a book tour. You've got a new book out. I do. I just wrote a book called Palaces for the People. And that is a phrase that comes from Andrew Carnegie, who was a horrible capitalist uh, and just a vicious uh, employer who uh, is infamous for his terrible treatment of labor, uh, but also turned out to have been an extraordinary philanthropist who uh, funded the construction of more than 2,800 libraries around the world and 
um, well, he, he surely has had a negative influence on uh, uh, the state of labor in the world. He has also had a quite salubrious uh, Im impact on communities around the world through these libraries, which have just stuck around. And so the book is about not just libraries, but also more broadly what I call the social infrastructure and how vital it is for us to uh, invest in and rebuild social infrastructure so if we have any chance of getting through this horrible dark time. I mean, Andrew Carnegie sounds very much like Jeff Bezos of his day, like possibly with more philanthropy, but the same kind of principle there. Yeah. Social, you say social infrastructure. From from my background, there's someone who's been writing about um, what, government infrastructure for a number of years. You say social infrastructure, I hear schools, hospitals, and yeah, libraries. I mean, what do you mean by the term? Yeah, so I mean so, something different. And I should be clear that, you know, I write it in the American context uh, where social infrastructure doesn't exist as a category. And I, I guess that tells you something about <laughs> American political culture. But I, I hope that this other way I'm, I use it will have some resonance here in the UK and, and around the world as well. So by social infrastructure, I mean the physical places and the organizations that shape our interactions. So I mean it differently than some of the other macroeconomists who, who use it here. Uh, so uh, when social infrastructure is robust when we invest in it, it makes it all the more likely that uh, people will interact with one another. And that could be because it's a, we have nice places where friends can make plans to meet, but it also is because when social infrastructure works well, uh, strangers interact. And if people come regularly to, say, a playground or a park or a library, uh, over time they'll interact enough to develop associations, even friendships, and and with more comes community. And, and, and that's something I think is sorely lacking in the world today. At the same time, when we fail to invest in social infrastructure, or you know, here in the UK, when we attack the social infrastructure, literally make it the, the target of a sustained government attack on resources, we make it all the more likely that people will feel atomized. They will become angry and frustrated with the limits of what the public sector can do and seek out more market-based solutions because they can't see any other possibilities. So give us some examples. When you say social infrastructure, what do you, I mean, were we literally talking about things like, you know, parks, public spaces, that kind of stuff, or is there, are there other versions of this? Yeah, like, there are, there are a bunch of different categories uh, that go into social infrastructure. And I'll, I'll tell you how I first got interested in it to make it as vivid as possible. Uh, years ago, I wrote a book about a, a great heat wave in Chicago, which is the city I grew up in in the mid-1990s. It was an event where hundreds, of, more than 700 people died in just a couple of days. And the thing that I was able to show in this book that I never expected to find is that what made some places in Chicago much more vulnerable than they might otherwise have been and what made other places more resilient uh, is the social infrastructure. And specifically, I found pairs of neighborhoods where everyone was African-American, where everyone was very poor, or great numbers of people were very poor, uh, where the health problems were severe, where crime was high, places that on paper should have had catastrophic results. And what I discovered is in many of those neighborhoods, there were in fact a lot of deaths, but in many neighborhoods like that, demographically the same, people fared better than they did even in the most affluent places in Chicago, including where I grew up. And I, and I was so curious about why. And what I discovered by looking very closely is that the neighborhoods that did well had this robust social infrastructure. The sidewalks were intact and attractive. The parks were well-maintained. 
They had a, a fairly vibrant commercial sector, so um, you know, small grocery stores and diners, coffee shops, barber shops, uh, active set of churches, a community center like a neighborhood library, and conditions like that made it much more likely that people would be out in public getting to know each other. And, and what that meant is not only did people have more friends and contacts, but during this disaster, they knew who was at risk. And that made them all the more likely to, to knock on someone's door if they weren't already out. Whereas in the neighborhoods that had high death rates, what you found is a lot of abandoned buildings, a lot of empty lots, broken sidewalks, parks that were uh, so poorly maintained that they were dangerous instead of uh, healthy. And in, in an environment like that, people tend to hunker down and, and grow quite individuated. And so that my first way into social infrastructure was recognizing that can really make the difference between life and death. What I find interesting about this story is that the, the kind of things you describe there as social infrastructure are not all government services. There's churches and so on, you know, things with voluntary associations are what we tend to call third sector over here. But there's also private businesses like diners or whatever, or, you know, the, the equivalent in Britain would probably be the, you know, the local pub. The pub the kind, yeah. yeah, the place where everyone kind of goes and we sort of know each other a little bit. Of course. But it's not all just like government intervention. This is just more about this gradual atomization of society, right? That's right. But we, we I think we've had a, a, a wholesale attack on these different kinds of social infrastructure in recent decades. I mean, so the, in, in the UK, of course, this wave of austerity, uh, which has resulted in the public realm, uh, you know, withering. So whether it's branch libraries shutting down or reducing their hours or schools having their physical plants reduced um, or, or parks, you know, just not being maintained, uh, there's been a real pro set of problems with the, with public institutions that are part of the social infrastructure. And in the commercial sector, we, you know, we've obviously heard about and experienced firsthand the, de the demise of the local pub, which has, like so many other businesses, had a hard time competing with the kind of larger chains and establishments that um, have moved in in their stead. Um, in the U.S., one thing that's, that's happened is a lot of these commercial third places have suffered because people are working more and more hours and at, at difficult times. And so it's we don't have the same rhythm of social life that allows there to be a nightly gathering where people come together. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the nonprofit sector in the, in the U.S. and I believe in the U.K. as well suffers during hard economic times, too. So I, I think of social infrastructure expansively. Uh, truth be told, the book focuses mostly on the public parts of the social infrastructure because that's the part that's most amenable to some kind of democratic politics. And I do think we need to start demanding uh, a greater investment in, in social infrastructure. But but. But truthfully, the, the social infrastructure can encompass these other kinds of institutions as well. So what is the policy response here? Because, I mean, like, it's easy enough to say, yeah, austerity has been terrible for this stuff. And, you know, you won't, you won't get any argument from me. I think yeah. austerity has been a complete waste of time that's just ruined the country. However, it's kind of difficult to work out what a policy response is that could mean that everyone's suddenly working the same hours again or that the local pub or the local diner can survive in place of the, the Starbucks that's kind of pushed it out. I yeah. mean, like, what do you, what do, yeah. we, what can governments do? So, so those are two things I'm very skeptical about. I don't see the labor trends reversing uh, without a real fight. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think the, the, the kind of smaller institutions commercially are going to have to fight very hard to stay alive in an era of these big international chains. But, 
but there's a lot that that uh, governments can do, and I think that citizens have to do if we want to reinvest in social infrastructure. So, uh, you know, for one, um, the low-hanging fruit. Over the next several decades, we will be investing hundreds of billions of pounds, dollars in my case, in infrastructure. We we really have no choice because the infrastructure that we use to sustain modern life and business in places like the U.S. and the U.K. is just woefully behind where it needs to be. And politicians really on, on every side of the political spectrum recognize the inadequacy of infrastructure now. And so when you design you know, physical structures, they can be made more or less social. And the low-hanging fruit is for engineers and government officials and architects to understand how to turn a hard infrastructure into a social one. So to take, for instance, uh, the case of, of you know, water management systems. What we've learned from the Netherlands and are trying to adopt in the U.S. Uh, is that if you try to build a wall, it doesn't work. You can't wall off water. You have to learn to live with it. But if you want to create a flood protection system that's going to block water to some extent, you can also make sure that it's more capacious socially. So instead of building a straight vertical wall along the edge of a river, you can build a sloped parkland that functions a little bit more like a bridging berm. And this is what we're doing on the Lower East Side mm -hmm. of Manhattan. Um, I, should, I should mention at this point that uh, a, a big reason I wrote this book is because for years I was the research director for President Obama's uh, Rebuild by Design competition, which funneled billions of public dollars into New York City and the region to try to rebuild uh, after a big hurricane we had there, Sandy. So these are some specific projects I'll talk about that that, that are going up now. Uh, so there was a proposal to put a big wall around the lower part of Manhattan, which would have made it very ugly and would, would also probably not have worked all that well. And so the the, the architect Bjarke Engels, who wound up winning this competition um, through our process, uh, has designed something very different. It's a, it's a sloped parkland. They call it a bridging berm. And the idea is that the entire Lower East Side of New York, uh, which is a gray and ugly uh, and difficult area with a lot of poverty behind it, would function as a storm barrier and keep the water out during a hurricane. But during the 364 days a year that there's not a water problem, uh, it would become a very pleasant social environment, a place that makes life healthier and nicer uh, every day, and also more social. And at the very basic level, as we start to build new infrastructures, we can, we can do more than just fortify our cities, and that's something I fear very much. Give us some other examples. What yeah. is, what, what, how, yeah. how else can we kind of merge these two yeah. sides of things and sort of be, you know, practically dealing with the infrastructure challenges of the future, but also yep. doing something that has a social function? Well, so there's a chapter in the book that's also about crime. And here's an area where, surprisingly, investing in social infrastructure can make an enormous difference. The chapter that you know, takes focus in Philadelphia, which is not too far from where I live in, in New York City, and Philadelphia, like many post-industrial cities, has enormous amounts of abandoned property, empty lots and abandoned homes that um, are in state of disrepair. And those areas that have concentrations of, of abandonment have often been uh, heavy sites of violence. And the American response to problems in neighborhoods like this has, has been guided by the broken windows theory of policing, which I'm sure you've heard of here. It's inspired this kind of wave of zero tolerance, stop and frisk, you know, mass incarceration style policing, right? And the. Sorry, to be clear, broken windows literally means if people see the windows are broken, they will 
suddenly get the urge to commit a crime. I mean, I mean, there's a most the reductio ad absurdum is kind of that, right? It's That's right. Like if people think this is a shabby area, then they will feel more inclined to act in antisocial ways. Yeah, the theory was that broken windows literally is our cues for potential criminals that you can get away with murder here because no one's watching. If they cared about the place, they would let, not let the windows stay broken, right? So it's interesting because this, this canonical article called Broken Windows uh, inspired this horrible wave of repressive and punitive policing that has transformed the United States and Europe as well. And what I always wondered is, what if our response to Broken Windows had been simply to fix the windows? What if we, instead of policing how we're heavily in those areas, just actually invested in the infrastructure and made the places nicer? And as it turns out, I, I'm not the only one who's been wondering about this. So in the book, I write about this incredible experiment they've been doing in Philadelphia for more than a decade now, and it involves the city and some researchers at University of Pennsylvania and a horticultural society. And when they came together and started randomly uh, treating a select number, but thousands of the empty lots and abandoned buildings in the city and leaving uh, many others as is. There's almost 50,000 abandoned properties in Philly, so they had lots to choose from. And what they discovered is that when they made a small, like a modest intervention of a few hundred dollars in turning an empty lot into a little pocket park, you know, with a, a wooden post fence and a nice lawn, nothing fancy, just a basic park, or when they really boarded up the abandoned building so that they couldn't be used by uh, anyone who wanted to squat there. Incredibly, uh, they observed a drop in violent crime of over 35% compared to the places that they hadn't treated. And those uh, drops have been sustained over a decade. And more surprisingly, it's not that the, the crime just kind of moved to the next block. It just didn't happen. And what that tells us is that even though we tend to think of crime as being very much about the individual criminal, a lot of crime is situational. If you, if you create a condition that makes crime more likely, you'll see more of it. If you take away those conditions, it will disappear. And even more incredibly, the researchers who did this decided to strap up a bunch of the residents in these neighborhoods to heart rate monitors and have people walk around and see what happens. And it turns out when you walk by an abandoned lot, empty property that's been uh, treated, almost no change at all in your heart rate. But if you walk by an abandoned house or an empty lot that no one has treated, that's kind of wild and full of debris, your heart rate spikes because you fear that there's a like higher likelihood of crime. And that really helps to explain a lot of the stress-related illnesses that we observe such in such high uh, uh, levels uh, in, in poor neighborhoods. So here's a case where Investing in social infrastructure has clear returns for uh, crime and safety and clear returns for health. And yet it's just not the kind of policy that's currently on the agenda for most people making rules in the U.S. and the U.K. Why isn't it on the agenda, do you think? I think it seems like a kind of soft, uh, you know, fuzzy idea about how to make the world a better place and not like uh, the kind of evidence-based social policy that we want to improve outcomes. And these days when everything needs to have a cost-benefit analysis, uh, policymakers are very skeptical of 
you know, anything that seems like a quality of life improvement. Uh, but here's an area where we have it exactly wrong. Uh, by spending as much money as we have spent on aggressive policing and on incarceration, um, we have done incredible damage to our society, to our neighborhoods, to communities, really disrupted the lives or destroyed the lives of, of countless people. And what this research is showing is there's a more humane and probably more cost-effective way of doing this. It strikes me that what you're talking about here is kind of what would once have been referred to as the commons. Like, it's just this idea of, like, you know, there is a public interest. There is, like, going against the whole thing that uh, Margaret Thatcher famously said, there's no such thing as society. This is kind of pushing back on that and saying, actually, there is this kind of dimension in which this stuff matters and does have a knock-on effect. What, it, it, do you think it's kind of harder to make this argument for, you know, we should be spending a certain amount of time and money on matters of the public interest because of the sort of political age we live in? I think it's very hard to make that argument. At the same time, you know, let's be clear, I'm, I'm very aware of what I've come to call the situation. It's the situation we're in in the United States, uh, the situation you have in the UK, frankly, the situation we see around the world, where there is some sense that uh, societies are breaking apart, uh, that we are divided and polarized in ways that we have not been for decades or centuries, um, that uh, the infrastructure doesn't work and society doesn't work and that there's a desperate need to do something about both of those problems. So I believe that we are having this conversation in the midst of a crisis. You know, this is not an ordinary moment. I also believe that this is a pivotal moment, uh, that the UK, the US, uh, many parts of the world will be making decisions over the next decade that will set a course for our future. And it's in this context that I think we need to make the most spirited case for uh, the public interest, for the public good, for the notion that uh, we as a collective can accomplish something through the state uh, that we will not get mm -hmm. from the market. That but, but I mean, this has probably been triggered by my using the phrase the commons, but it makes me think of the, the concept of the tragedy of the commons, which yeah. is, you know, if something is everyone's job then it's nobody's job effectively so like the, the idea of common spaces decaying because nobody's in charge of them i mean how do you push back against that it just is, is this an argument for just a much bigger state than we've grown used to the last half century well no i i think that you know we can be very specific and targeted in the way that we make investments and i think we'll probably have to do it you know institution at a time so for instance there is now uh emerging a whole complex of interest around uh infrastructure for climate security and there will be uh, a, a set of uh, technocratic experts who tell us that there's one way to do this, and it will, they will probably come up with a more military-style plan, which involves you know big walls meant to shut out the threat. And in this area, I don't want to see us make the mistake for climate security that we in the U.S. made for homeland security, which is to respond to a, a, a disastrous event uh, by massively militarizing the public space that we once enjoyed. Uh, we may or may not have prevented a second September 11th in the United States with all the bollards and barriers and checkpoints and cameras that are everywhere, but uh, and, and, and it's an open question as to whether that has been effective at all, but what's certain is, is that it has massively degraded the quality of everyday life for millions of us, you know, such that living in a city feels remarkably different than it did before that event. 
and around climate, for instance, uh, there is a moment now where we could change the conversation about how to spend our resources and how to and how to do this right. Now, that's not going to deal with the more existential threat of you know mitigating and reducing our carbon footprint, um, but it, it could potentially, if part of our climate security program is investing in things like public transit. Uh, another targeted area has to do with specifically with libraries. Uh, much of the book, the kind of spine of the book, if you will, is uh, a, a case for the library as the paradigmatic social infrastructure because it's so uh, aggressively inclusive and accessible uh, because uh, it has programming for everyone and everyone has a right to use the library regardless of whether they're homeless or uh, mentally ill or disabled uh, or a wealthy banker, and they're you know it's the kind of institution that does far more good than I think our policymakers recognize. And here again, uh, you know, the, the, uh, I, I try to make the case uh, around that particular institution. But how do I mean? Like libraries have been effectively under attack in the UK because of austerity. Yes. As I understand it, in in the United States, they are the sort of thing that get closed because of municipal budget problems and so on. Like, how do you push back on this? I mean, at the most basic level, where does the money come from? No, well, I think first of all, uh, you know, we, we do spend money in both of our countries on the programs that we think of as vital. And so, in part, my book is a challenge to the notion that the library and other social infrastructure is a luxury. And what I try to document is the set of goods that it provides. Uh, you know, we, we clearly have had enough money to spend on, on prisons, on police officers, on all kinds of security that are meant to improve the quality of our life. Um, and it is my view that if you surveyed Americans and an increasing number of Brits, you would find that uh, there's some real frustration with these policies that involve austerity. I, I think that maybe this uh, dose of austerity has run its course. And my understanding is even Theresa May is beginning to acknowledge that we might be turning a corner on this. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether that actually sort of translates into any actual policy. But she's not been clear on where the government is going to get the money to kind of roll back on austerity. I mean, like... the mo <laughs> At the most basic level, is she going to raise taxes? Is she going to increase borrowing? It's not. It's not clear. That's right. So part of this has to come from you know not just from our leaders, but also from from us, from mm. from our you know grassroots activism and um, and political agenda. So you don't tend a, to see pro-tax marches. Well, though, so, but but, but you know, in the book, I write about a couple of American municipalities that have voted to give themselves higher taxes in order to fund things like libraries. We, you know, for instance, the, the city of Columbus, Ohio, has passed a set of referenda mm. to specifically increase the budget of the public library system so they could provide programming that families in that city felt like they desperately needed. And there are other American municipalities, including, by the way, affluent suburban areas full of right-wing voters who are in principle say they're against taxes, who selectively vote to increase their taxes to do things like improve the quality of their schools, to build out their playgrounds and parks, to make sure their athletic programs are strong. So you find these surprising wells of support for certain kinds of public programs in the most unlikely places. I'm not, I, I am not, I'm not naive. I'm not glib. I think this is going to be an argument and a fight. But I do believe that um, right now, more than ever, we need to, to make that argument. We need to engage in that fight. Because if we roll over and grow cynical and think that it's just impossible to do anything good, we've already lost the battle. Uh, I, th I think, you know, at a time like this, 
we're so conditioned to be afraid and to be putting out one fire after the next that it's essential for us to step back a minute and instead of kind of entering into that next conversation complaining about how bad things are for us to begin to re-articulate a vision of what a good world and a good society could be okay let's try and end on a positive note where is <laughs> give me some good news where's doing this well uh it's a, it's a great question uh you know i th actually think on, on climate uh here the netherlands does provide an inspiration for us because uh, not only have they been thinking very carefully about how to uh, engineer for climate change, but also how to engineer to uh, create a more unified society. Uh, there's a very impressive set of social infrastructure programs where you, know, you see things like water management combined with uh, the expansion of public space, you know, democratic, accessible public space. Uh, and they're clearly doing this at a moment where much of the world is privatizing public space and making it difficult to do any kind of meaningful assemblage. So uh, a shout out to the Netherlands uh, uh, for the credit that they deserve. I also just want to return to um, this, the city of Columbus, Ohio. I think the fact that you have a major municipality um, well, that, that's the, where, where taxpayers are saying, you know, we want to invest in each other. We want to invest in a, a, a vital social infrastructure and public good because uh, it's just it's just worth the price. Uh, you know, that's an example for the rest of us to follow. And finally, I want to say that uh, this project in Philadelphia of actually repairing the broken streets and sidewalks and windows. Uh, in places that might otherwise fall apart and become more dangerous. Uh, that's the kind of thing that can scale up, that can change neighborhoods throughout the United States and, and perhaps even the world. So uh, th this book is not um, a utopian tract. Uh, really what, you know, what I try to do is uh, spend time in places that are doing, doing things right uh, to provide some real examples uh, that, that I think can give us maybe not cause for optimism, but at least uh, uh, models, uh, you know, symbols of hope uh, in a time when, when we might otherwise just want to put our head under the covers and not come out. <laughs> do you want to do the, uh, the basic blurb for the title and the publisher and so on? Sure, yeah. So the book is called Palaces for the People, How to Create a More Equal and United Society. Uh, it's published here in the UK by Bodley Head. Uh, and uh, I'm very happy to talk to you. Is it out now? It's out now. Excellent. Just out. Thank you very much, Eric. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Just breaking into this week's podcast for our semi-regular slot, Ask the Expert with the Centre for Cities. Um, this week we have a new slash old expert, Paul Swinney, who is, well, you head of policy? I've lost track. Head of policy and research. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, a, fa- a fairly frequent uh, guest on Skylines, it must be said. So, you know, you've got to beat your past performances here. <laughs> Always got to better myself. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, exactly. If you don't want them thinking like, why is he an expert? You'd be here from him all the time. Um... So, so this week we are going to talk about what I think is like one of the uh, most most lively questions in the urban nerdery debate, certainly in Britain at the moment, which is: Are we talking too much about cities and not enough about towns? As the centre for cities, what do you reckon, Paul? <laughs> well, the first thing to say is that it's great that we're talking about place. I think if we were to go back ten years ago. Um, we very much stuck here talking about the national economy, perhaps be a little bit of, of sort of regions and we wouldn't get any further. And I think it probably shows how far the debate's come, that actually we're in a position now where there are some quarters where, you know, people have been saying that we've done too much on cities and actually it needs to be focused on towns. We obviously would disagree with that. I think if you look at the, the performance of cities, you see that some do very well, but some don't. I think from a policy point of view, um, there has been some focus on cities rightly, I don't think that policy has been 100% effective, and I think there's a lot more that could be done. Um, but particularly within that, and what the debate tends to miss, is that there's a relationship between cities and towns. Mm-hmm. Cities play a particular function in the, in the national economy. Towns play a particular role as well. And then there's a relationship between them in terms of what those roles look like. And that's what we have to be thinking about within this. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's, there's a lot to unpack here. One of the questions that I always come back to in this debate is... The reason so much of, of policy has focused on bigger places is because of this thing called agglomeration theory, right? It's the idea that like, if you put enough people in a place, um, there's a deep enough labour pool, there's a deep enough sort of pool of skills, there's, people generate ideas and sort of, you know, swap expertise and so on, can go and work for each other's companies. And so you get higher uh, productivity and higher growth. Um, so the, the, you, you pop this into the government policy making machine and what you get out of the other end is basically George Osborne's Northern Powerhouse idea where it's like, well, if we just fix the big cities of the north and link them up better, then that will drag everywhere else up. And I think the town's agenda is, is sort of a response to that where like people feel like it's been very focused on, on particularly central Manchester rather than a lot of the, the smaller places in its orbit. But, but the question I keep coming back to is like, is agglomeration something that George Osborne made up? Or is it to phrase it less less aggressively, like, you know, is this is it a result of conscious policy making or is this a result of sort of natural economic gravity? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I think if you um well, there's, there's a number of things to say in that. I think the, the first thing is that, as you say, John, agglomeration is about scale, but concentration too. It's about concentrating activity in one place. 
Whereas Northern Powerhouse sort of now uses the idea of agglomeration to say, well, actually, you know, the north of England could be one big agglomeration. That's a lot of people. Yes, it's 16 million people, but that's not a concentration of, mm. of scale. And, and so the word agglomeration tends to get misused a little bit now. So it's very much about that focus on, you know, focus within a particular place, that concentration of activity. Then we've got a question, I think, around... Um, around, well, does agglomeration actually play out in the UK? And this is something we do here sometimes, because if you look at the performance of our largest cities, um, from a productivity perspective in particular, agglomerations meant to make cities more productive, we actually see our cities are below, more many of our cities are below the national average. So you say, well, hang on, that can't, what's going on there? So agglomeration mustn't work, we must sort of throw it out of the window. What we would say, However, instead, is that if you do look at, at big cities uh, in other countries, particularly within America, agglomeration very clearly plays out. Um, and the fact that it doesn't play out so clearly in the UK actually is a really big issue. You know, it, as you say, it's this natural sort of economic force, this clustering of activity in one place um, that we should be reaping the benefits from and we're not. And I think that's why we need to have a continued focus on our cities to understand what's going on, because there should be the drivers of productivity growth, there should be the drivers of prosperity, and yet many of them aren't, with the only clear um, uh, kind of example of that being London, where clearly agglomeration mm. does play out. I mean, that makes me wonder if, to make agglomeration work, basically what you need is is transport. Like in the L- London is relatively easy, not just London, but the whole southeast is relatively easy to get about. Um, American cities don't tend to have big public transport networks, but they're they're built at a lower density, which enables you to kind of have, use big highway networks. European cities are much more public transport based. It's I sometimes wonder if like a lot of our big cities are kind of this awkward. They fall between the two stools, right? So, like, you don't have really good public transport networks a lot of the time, but also they're still concentrated enough that traffic is going to be a nightmare and you can't get around by car either. Is that, I mean, this is, is this just me as a sort of man with a tube map? So really <laughs> and, well, and certainly tell that you've been to party conferences for the last couple of weeks because you've just said, here's a question, the answer is transport, which is exactly how it felt in both <laughs> Labour and Tory conferences. Whenever we're talking about some national growth, doesn't matter what the question is, transport, we need to fix it. Um, this is I, my moment, <laughs> I think part of the answer to that is yes. Um, it seems, like particularly the Northern Powerhouse sort of rhetoric, the answer has been, or oh, it's transport between cities that we need to fix. Transport between cities in the North England isn't great, but I don't think it's the driver of it. I think we're much more um, focused on, as you're alluding to, uh, transport within cities, and that's the big challenge. And I think, you know, think about the benefits of a city. You know, what they do in part is they link workers to jobs. Lots of jobs in a place, lots of workers. That allows employers to pick from a deep pool of, of workers. It allows workers themselves to say, actually, well, you know, I'm going to start from this place, but I might be able to move to this job, and then there's another job there, and move up the career ladder that way. That's how trans- or that's the role of transport within this, is to facilitate that. So if in Manchester um, the Metro link was expanded, that would link more people to more jobs. And that then strengthens the benefit of being based within within Greater Manchester. And so that's where I think the focus needs to be. So what would you do about that? Well, you know, we've had transport for London. In London for the last 20 years or so, fairly cheap, certainly cheaper than building, you know, massive new rail lines. And yet we haven't rolled that out at other places. I just don't get that. Um, so that would seem to be a pretty easy win, really. Um, but there, of course, will be other things too. You know, if you haven't got um, enough skilled workers or you, perhaps a, a relative paucity of skilled workers, that is going to be a problem in terms of attracting in businesses, and so you're going to have to have policies around skills. Um, 
planning policy is going to be important in terms of understanding the roles that different parts within a city play, never mind different parts of the, the country to say, well, which parts of the, of the city are we going to link up in terms of transport? What should we be doing about city centres and provision of office space there and, say, light industrial space out of town? What does that then look like? So there's a mix of things on which transport is, is certainly one of, uh, one of those sort of pillars that you would want mayors to be focusing on and other city leaders. We've drifted quite a long way from our original question and you've started banging on about skills and I've started banging on about transport, <laughs> which is probably just like, that's always danger, really. Uh, but to kind of come back to it, have towns been neglected by this policy agenda or by what came before it, do you think? Like, are the people pushing that line, making a point there? Well, I think the first thing to say is that um, not all towns do badly. Actually, if you look at a number of towns, particularly in the Greater Southeast, they do pretty well. And I think the sort of the agenda seems to um, paint a picture. And I think this is reflected probably in the uh, the video that the Labour Party put out after conference for anybody who's seen it, which is on on cities all doing really fantastically and on ta- all towns doing really badly. Um, that isn't actually the case. But clearly, we can see that there are a number of towns that that don't do very well. And I think um, particularly they've been hit hard by changes in the national and the global economy. Um, You know, a number of places were relying on one particular industry which doesn't exist anymore or or has moved offshore or whatever it is. And that's been tough. You know, it's been it's been difficult to adapt and and change to these sort of uh, the changing global uh, global winds that have been going on. However, having said that, I think within this, it's not just towns that have been affected by this. You know, in the same way that some towns do well and some towns don't, actually a number of cities don't do very well either, been affected by the same sort of issues. And I think the challenge is that, well, how do we allow places to adapt um, to the, the, the change in nature of the economy? Um, for cities, I think that's a little bit more straightforward because you've got this strengthening um, uh, or agglomeration playing an ever larger role. For towns that are smaller, I think that can be slightly more difficult because, like, well, you know, manufacturing moved out of cities into towns, but actually a lot of that manufacturing is either sort of shrunk its uh, employment base or it's moved off elsewhere. What do you then do about these places? And that's quite a, a thorny question. Am I right in thinking that the shift from manufacturing to services is a big part of sort of where agglomeration has become a thing because like manufacturing is so dependent on you know physical space as well as supply lines but like you need like actual place to put factory and the town around it kind of, you know it's it's something that fits well with kind of you know a town sized economy whereas like services the key thing people want is the labor pool so it makes more sense to kind of do it in a bigger place it's certainly um for so for what we call more knowledge-based services. So those um, high-skilled services jobs like uh, law, finance, marketing, smartphone app development, etc. Um, they need both access to lots of high-skilled workers, but also have this benefit of co-locating with other types of, of activity, you know, this ability to have face-to-face interaction, share ideas and information. I think particularly that's why city centres are playing an ever larger role in the, in the national economy. It's not just cities, it's, it's city centres in particular. And so they really do sort of benefit from, from agglomeration. Having said that, you know, it's not all high skilled services that, that benefit from that. If we're thinking about, say, um, pharmaceuticals companies or, um, companies that work in the defence industry, 
you know, they want to have lots of smart people working with each other and sharing ideas, but they definitely don't want those ideas to go outside of the four walls of that, that campus. Because from a pharmaceuticals perspective, for example, you know, you need to patent that stuff first before it goes out. Otherwise, someone's going to nick your idea and they're going to make billions of pounds rather than you. So I think that's why you then start to see, say, things like pharmaceuticals, GSK being based in Stevenage, for example, places like Basingstoke, actually lots of defense type activities going on there. Um, because they still want access to lots of, of skilled workers, um, which being close to London probably helps with, or being in the greater southeast. But actually, don't want to be able to be in that sort of dense environment because, like you say, they want a little bit more space and they want um, they want to keep some of their things under lock and key. So, so agglomeration has become more important in general for the economy. It doesn't apply, apply for all companies, but if you are then talking about manufacturing in particular. Lower skills, more traditional type manufacturing would probably go to a town where, you know, lots of cheaper workers, lots of cheap land, brilliant, that works for them. Um, interestingly, if you're talking about, say, more advanced manufacturing, however, they still don't want a, a city location, but they probably do want to be on the fringes of a successful city in particular because they want lots of land, but actually still want access to that, that high-skilled labour force that sort of being on the fringes of a city provides. And I think, that, therefore, a lot of towns, particularly around London, have benefited from the rise of advanced manufacturing, like, which is principally in the Great South East. It's, it's interesting what you say about you know people running off with patents. I mean, I can imagine how frustrating it would be for you guys if someone else decided to set up uh, uh, a very data-heavy place-based think tank, uh, that would be a nightmare. Well, it's all about it. competition keeps you on your toes, I guess, doesn't it? <laughs> and it's the it's the element of um, it, it. Actually, is quite a nice sort of example because you know if we um, if you were to think about um, consultancies, let's say you know consultancies will be in uh, in competition with each other. Let's pick um, PwC and, and EY, uh, and if we then look at where uh, they are in London. Um, you can go to sort of the South Bank, uh, just behind City Hall, uh, in sort of around the London Bridge area in London, and you can see that they're literally ten yards apart from one another. So they're in direct competition, and yet they've clustered very closely together because of the benefit of, of being based there. If well, instead, you can literally hang around outside and go. Quite exactly. Whereas if you're a pharmaceutical company, you know. Um, you would very much be wanting to keep that information under lock and key. So I think it's, it's a nice illustration of how different industries want to share information or don't want to share information and how that then has an Im- implications for where they then choose to set up. Well, I started with a simple question about towns and cities and we've ended up all over the map on this one. That shows <laughs> that how much how complicated this stuff is and how it's all interconnected. So I imagine we will be coming back to this one fairly frequently. But until next time, thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and produced by me, John Ellidge. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do consider leaving us an iTunes review. It really helps other people to discover the show. And, you know, the more people get listening to the show, the sooner I can achieve my real goal of world domination for the medium of trains. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 